Hello, and welcome to Small Shop Fundraising. I'm your host, Liz Hack. Today on the podcast, we will be talking with Michelle Ray, Chief Communications Officer for the Pikes Peak Library District in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And more importantly, she's a great friend of mine for a lot of years. Today, we're going to talk about the reopening of her library system and how they intend to serve the over 600,000 patrons and visitors that have walked through their doors annually. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Hi, Michelle. Hello. Hey, thank you so much for saying yes to being on my podcast this week. I think your story and what you're doing at the Pikes Peak Library System is going to prove really helpful for my listeners, all nine of them. So um, before we get into talking about how your library system out in Colorado Springs is starting to reopen after uh, a worldwide pandemic, I'd like to hear a little bit more about, well, I know your background because I've known you forever, but I think our listeners would like to hear about briefly about your background in nonprofit, in the nonprofit sector. Oh, so you mean people actually want to know why I have maybe some expertise in this area <laughs> um, and how you know someone that lives out in Colorado? <laughs> well, like you, I'm originally from Louisville, Kentucky, so born and raised there, lived there for majority of my life, went to college in Kentucky as well at the great University of Kentucky. Um, mm-hmm. go <laughs> then I moved out to Colorado and I have been working and living out here ever since. So I have more than 15 years of experience in nonprofit communications with a heavy focus in public relations and marketing. And it's kind of expanded from there into community engagement, public policy, advocacy, and internal communications as well. So you're a little busy maybe right now trying to keep people informed? Uh, Yes, I'd say we're almost a little bit busier than we were when all of our libraries were open. So we're a pretty large library system. We cover majority of the county here. Uh, So the nearest or where we're kind of headquartered in some ways and the largest town where that is within our county is Colorado Springs, Colorado. So we have 16 library facilities 15 of those being libraries that actually circulate materials, have computer labs, a place, a public space that people, uh, everyone is welcome to come and visit and engage with. And then we do have a digital collection, resources, services, and programs as well. But that's where kind of the pandemic changed how we had to approach things. Because when that did happen in about mid-March for us was when we had to make the tough decision to close down our facilities temporarily. So, and we serve nearly 700,000 people across our county. It's a pretty large county, very geographically diverse. Holy moly. uh, Sprawling community, very different members of the community. And our libraries are very unique and serve different populations as well. So it was hard for us to make that decision decision, but it was made yeah. within the best interest of our staff and patrons in the community at large. Yeah. So from there, we really had to think about how can we continue to serve the public without having our facilities available to even staff or patrons. So Michelle, how many people work? How many employees do you have? Uh, 
in the system? That's a great question. So Thank we you. have over 450 <laughs> staff. We also have more than a thousand volunteers as well. Wow. But staff doing all kinds. I mean, that's the really interesting for me thing going into libraries because previously I was really focused more in the nonprofit sector, working at mid-size to small nonprofits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to come to a place with such a large number of staff, I mean, you have staff that work doing facilities work, maintaining the buildings to obviously librarians is probably where everyone minds go when they think about libraries. But you also have like the IT staff that are making sure that all the Wi-Fi access is up and running and the infrastructure is there that we need to be able to serve people digitally. So there's a staff at all levels and at all locations, and it's covering more than 2,000 square miles of our county as well. So again, very geographically dispersed in terms of how we are serving people physically as well as digitally. Wow. So when you first heard that you might have to shut down your facilities, was it the board that was impact that had any kind of decision in the process of shutting down? Was it just the internal staff? And then how did you all communicate? Was it What's your main source of communication with your like program participants and visitors? So interesting that you asked, because when this kind of all came about, we had a board orientation and several, several of the board members were there to kind of participate in a refresher about all that we do as a library district. And that was the day that a lot of information was coming from Denver, which is the capital of Colorado, about some action that was taking place and some closures that were happening. So we got to have some face-to-face conversations with our board of trustees and then also called a pretty urgent meeting with our management team. So all who manage our different library facilities, library staff, also our support and strategic services. So everyone came to Together and started having conversations and just some initial conversations. But that decision was made a few days later that we needed to move in the direction of a temporary closure and go from there. So with going with that, the, some of the biggest things we first took was obviously informing staff and making sure staff are aware. That's one of the key components in, I'd say, any crisis community. Sure communication situation, but almost any time of the year, your staff are your biggest ambassadors and your most important assets. So ensuring that staff are informed, that you're being transparent, that you're sharing the information that they need to know and why decisions are being made. But from there, we did have to produce a lot of in-house signage. But thankfully, again, I I have a team of 11 with some pretty strong, two good graphic designers on staff. So we were able to produce some signs in-house pretty quickly that were on brand and on message, which we always enjoy being able to do. But in this situation, to turn it around pretty quickly to get to all of our libraries facilities to put out on their buildings. I mean, we also had to look at updating our phone system, our website, social media, like reaching out to our local media contacts. So really taking all the like existing communication channels that we typically use and how we reach out to our community and getting the message out that way. I think it's great that you were able to turn that around and and it was it, it's important to your system it's important to the nonprofit to be on brand to have the right signage to give the right information the right look and feel so people know what to look for so important when you're dealing in a crisis like you said that's, that's yes. wonderful and 
And I totally get as well coming. My job previously to this one was at a smaller statewide nonprofit. So I definitely understand the limitations of either having only one communication staff member, because at one point that's all I was, was the department of one. And also knowing, too, that some people don't even have that ability, depending on the size of their organization and what they're focused on and where they're at. And now, especially with some potential funding challenges that everyone's going to experience. But even if you just simply have some documentation, whether it be a Word document that you can drop your logo into and create signs that way and just maintaining consistency, that was something that we even did to make available to other staff. Uh, and, And we found definitely useful and we continue to be doing stuff like that i mean that's even as simplistic as you need to be is how can you clearly state your message but also kind of maintain that brain consistency that is so important regardless if in your crisis or not well let's fast forward you've shut down now we're gonna fast forward to talking about reopening and like we said before we started recording i think cavalier and phased reopenings are going to be two of the words that people aren't going to want to hear after 2020. <laughs> but I, I know that you, you and your team and the rest of your library system is working on a phased reopening approach. And I want, I wanted to talk to you a little and hear a little bit from you about what were the first things, the prerequisites or some of the first things you did prior to those reopening tactics. And then of course, talk about how you all are planning for the more phased openings as as Colorado tries to find the new normal, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, something actually that we were working on prior to the pandemic coming forth was actually a pandemic response plan. So we already had kind of an existing template in place that needed to be updated as it was. And unfortunately, I guess a real situation stepped in and really forced our hand to move in the direction of creating plans that we could use during this growing situation that was impacting everyone in our community, the nation and the world. So a lot of the factors with our phase three opening is was first looking at when is it safe to bring staff back into our facilities and what does that look like? What are the things that we need to have in place, whether it be the right personal protective equipment? So is it masks? Is it gloves? Is it all the above? Do we have enough hand sanitizers? So, I mean, even thinking through just those safety procedures that need to be in place, we had to consider those kind of factors initially just to even determine, is it safe and when is it safe for our staff to come back? So that was phase one. And we actually, that was... Did that include taking inventory of things that you had on hand as far as PPE or any other protective? Yes. And some of that too, because I mean, the situation we've been in, and I know across the nation and the world, this has been a challenge of where healthcare workers in particular and first responders didn't have enough of the proper equipment that they needed. So early in the pandemic, we did donate much of our supplies to support them. So then we had to seek out what do we still have available and what do we need to order and when can it arrive? So there was a lot of coordination with some local vendors, but then also some national vendors to get the supplies that we needed, Uh, working with staff to determine the capacity to come back. Because I know with each governor, they've had a different kind of approach on how to move into more of a not stay at home, but safer at home order. And that is exactly what our governor has been calling it. And we were only allowed to be at half capacity in all of our facilities. 
So there's definitely been some challenges, too, in the sense of having to do the required health screenings. Um, there's been talk about do we need to introduce the temperature checks, how to coordinate with the staff, because someone has to be available to do the health screenings in all of the buildings. Wow. Uh, so yeah. it's definitely been a bit of a process. And then if anyone's exhibiting any symptoms, they cannot come in to work. We've also been moving in the direction in particular with library staff of more of these nodes. So there's a group of staff that work together the same shift all of the time. And then if one person does exi start exhibiting symptoms or some, you know, something comes up, then they can remove that entire node and bring in another one until they can be under a self-quarantine that guarantees that they are, they are not sick and not going to expose anyone else to COVID-19 yeah. or another contagious illness. It's very smart, but hard to enforce. I would, I would assume it's all this all new normal of taking temperatures and doing health checks and something that potentially our communities across the country are going to have to see if they will allow, I would assume how that, how that impacts our being able to get back to new normal. Oh, without a doubt. So, so those are some of your kind of initial steps. What is some of your current phased openings that you have already begun or will do in the future? Yeah, so we just launched curbside service. So obviously many like restaurants and yeah. other retails like stores have, are offering this or have been offering it. And it is something that we got approval from our county health department to move forward with. So that launched on Wednesday. And so people are now allowed to return materials that they checked out from the library as well as pick up holds that they had already placed. So there are a lot of those. Yeah. Um, so they are quarantining all of the return materials for 72 hours. So that was, again, kind of exceeding public health guidelines in terms of safety. And then with the holds, each library has a slightly different procedure for people to pick up their materials without having direct interactions with any staff or other patrons. And then also trying to maintain the safety of their materials so they are the only ones that are touching it once it gets into their hands. And so are all of your libraries open right now or did you open just a few of them to, to test this? So we went and did it at all 15 libraries that actually do provide such items for checkout. We have one facility that's kind of more of a community space that's used differently and that's kind of being explored for other options, but we did just move forward with all of them. We had uh, some very eager and great staff that worked really hard on this plan and to determine how we could do it safely and quickly. This was something that our patrons and our community were requesting and hoping to see soon. So people have been thrilled and in our first day, I saw piles of books because we are even using our meeting and study rooms to quarantine the materials and rooms are full right now. Okay, Michelle, so you have put your plan together and you've ha had some success. How did you communicate with the folks who would frequent your, your libraries across the system and those who used your online materials? Yeah, we used a lot of the same common channels that we did early in the pandemic and that we typically would use anyways, regardless of what the situation is in our community. So that includes local media, also our website, social media. So really kind of tapping into those existing channels that we have found to be effective in the past. But something that we've tried a bit differently and we've been wanting to delve into this is email marketing and text messaging. So we have 
more than 200,000 library cardholders who are subscribed to our emails and then about 67,000 people who are subscribed to get text messages from us. So these are already engaged library cardholders and people who have opted in to receive communication. So we started sending weekly updates via those channels and they have become really effective for us in terms of being able to get our messages to people who want to know what is going on and what we've been doing during the closure and when we'll be reopening and how to the community. And so have you seen any pushback on text messages and or emails or have people been pretty open about you're using their them to yeah, text. For the, because they've opted in, they know that this they have chosen to get notifications from us. Now we are sending more notices than typically I think what they would expect, but we're trying to make sure that the messaging is very timely and relevant to our cardholders. So they, they are aware that we are offering virtual programs. We will give you updates on when we're going to be reopening and what does that phased reopening look like, that we are going to be offering curbside service, which now we are. And clearly even when day one of our launch of that on Wednesday, May 13th, we've definitely seen that people have been receptive. But obviously, there's always going to be a small contingency of people either who don't want to receive those messages or might be questioning what you're doing, especially for us being a what's considered a governmental instrumentality, meaning that we get a lot of funding from property taxes. So we are heavily relied upon taxpayers in our community. So there's definitely been a lot of questions about taxpayer dollars and how it's being used or not being used during a pandemic due to our temporary closure of all of our facilities. Wow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What have you noticed? I keep talking about the new normal and that's something that I think everyone is, is waiting to see what that new normal is. What, what is something new or something that you used to not use as much that you see yourself using more in your communications with, you know, we're, we're talking about folks who visit you, uh, but also your donors. You weren't using prior to the pandemic that is kind of now part of that new normal tool. Yeah, I'd say for our team as a whole, one of the biggest challenges and opportunities for us is really providing a new service model. Like we had had to move in a direction of offering more virtual programs. So a large part of that has been creating videos, whether that be how-to guides or a children's story time or doing a craft at home with your kids. Uh, whatever it may be. So creating those videos and really tapping into, for us, it's been YouTube and making that be the place where we can host these videos, host these programs, make it available to people at any time. So then they can go and watch these videos on a playlist and see reoccurring ones. If they're with their children and they want to spend two hours doing something, we have that opportunity for them now. So we're really moving in this direction of in the, our new normal is probably going to be a hybrid. Like maybe for now, it's just going to be a focus on the virtual programs and maybe looking at what kind of kits we could check out to people to do at home with these programs. But then a hybrid approach where maybe it's going to be an in-person program that we offer in an event, but also something that people can participate in virtually as well. Yeah. So it's really shifted our focus in terms of looking at how we're using the digital space and the virtual space and also thinking 
thinking about people's privacy too. So, I mean, thinking about Zoom as well as like the videos. And so we're, we're reevaluating our website and social media policy in light of all the changes that are taking place. But then also thinking too about what tools do we want to be using as a staff, but what tools do we also want to be using to better serve our patrons? I think that's just wonderful because, you know, a lot of times what I'm hearing from uh, the healthcare industry, they're re- able to reach people that they haven't seen or haven't come to their offices in years or months because of this virtual opportunity. And it sounds as though that could be the same for um, you're going to be able to reach more people because it's coming to them in a way that they're comfortable with uh, through YouTube on their computers, at home, on their phones, on their tablets, not coming into a facility or having to drive somewhere far because like you said, your your system is so large geographic area, it's it could potentially be a you know, a positive thing that more folks are able to find you as a resource. Have you seen any of that yet or We have seen an increase of people signing up for library cards. Uh, And what we're able to do during the pandemic is give people access to our remote resources, so those digital resources. But what we've also found, too, is that there is a gap. Uh, Because our community and the way our county is kind of set up is we have urban areas, we have suburban communities, and we also have rural communities. And in particular, in the rural parts of our county, there, people are challenged with the digital divide, as in they don't have the easy access to internet or reliable internet access or the technology always in some cases. And so we're seeing this not only based upon location, but also population, different ages, different financial circumstances are affecting that. So we have been looking at different ways that we can serve our community as a whole, even those who may not have that access to participate in our virtual Mm -hmm. offerings that we have. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we have found to be a challenge, but I think there's opportunity there that we're continuing to look at. So we're offering Wi-Fi access from our buildings that people can come to our parking lots at our facilities and still be able to get the internet that they need. We're also looking at, is there an opportunity to check out laptops and hotspots that people can take home with them? So there's a lot of ways that we're going to be exploring. And I think as li- like librarians as a whole, as a community, we'll be thinking about and innovating on how we can better serve our communities as a whole versus just those that have that technology and internet access. Access. Sounds like a big challenge, Michelle, but I know that you're up for it. Would you say that's one of the larger challenges that your system faces as far as reopening and being able to reach your patrons during a pandemic so that they feel as connected as they can be to their community and to the library system? I'd say that's a common thread that many of us have heard from community members that that is a challenge they're facing. So that is something that we see. And we had to ramp up so quickly to kind of adapt to the new situation and the new normal that we're entering that we now are, we want to take a step towards thinking about how can we better serve those that may not have the transportation to come and pick up the material, say a curbside pickup or have that internet access, or maybe they're in a population, there's someone who is considered high risk right now and they don't feel comfortable leaving their home. So there is a lot of exploration taking place as we think about how can we best serve our community as a whole. Yeah, we're not quite there yet. We're all we're all still trying to find our way through this crazy time. 
looking for our new normal that makes sense and and that fits our needs as uh, each community moves forward and as a as a nation. So I thank you so much for being here. I, I did have a couple of questions, kind of like a I'm trying out this lightning round of some common questions that I'm going to start asking my guests. What is one of your favorite tools or resources for getting your work done in the in your nonprofit that you can mm. share with the audience? So I will share one of my favorites from when I worked at a smaller nonprofit. I think my current team would like bulk at this, but I understand because when you have a larger team that can do more, uh, that does kind of change how it looks. But Canva has always been one. I think my once it was introduced to me, that became one of my favorite tools to do quick social media graphics, invitations, whatever you need to pull together. And the great thing, too, is they offer access for nonprofits where you can load in your brand colors and your fonts. So you really can maintain that strong brand identity Mm -hmm. and consistency when whatever you may be creating and whatever you need on the fly. And they also have an app. I've done actually quite a bit from my phone when needed in the past. I didn't know they had an app. That's something I learned tonight. (laughs) So what's what is one thing that you love about working at a nonprofit? And what is one thing that you don't love so much about working at a nonprofit? Um, I'd not say hate, the- just less love. <laughs> not not love. <laughs> Your like, least favorite. Part. Well, I think always for me, being mission driven, that working for a nonprofit, that you're focused on helping others and having a purpose to improve our world, to improve people's lives, to support and strengthen your community. That for me is probably what's most fulfilling about working in the public service and nonprofit sector. Hmm. Least favorite part, probably always the challenge of not having enough funding or Mm -hmm. being kind of strapped with resources and not being able to do everything that you want. But then on the flip side, there's actually some great things about that because you almost have to become more resourceful. You almost have to be more innovative and thoughtful about what you do. So I think there's also a positive in that, but I know that that's probably a common sentiment that others share. Always looking for the lemonade, Michelle. (laughs) One last question. One piece of advice that you want to share with small to medium-sized nonprofits? Something I've been talking a lot about with our staff, and not only on the communications team, but across our library district, is we can't appease everyone, and we can't communicate everything. So what are the things that we need to focus on? Uh, And really kind of honing in on the most important aspects, because this is a challenging time for everyone. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not, this is abnormal. This is not normal what we are going through, but it's going to become part of our new normal as, as everyone is calling it. So be kind to yourself and just remember that we can't communicate everything and we can't make everyone happy. That's right. We're all going to get through this and we're going to get through it together. Thanks, Michelle. I really appreciate you spending some time with me on small shop fundraising. So Michelle, if people want to reach out to you and have other questions, is what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's Michelle Ray, R-A-Y. Or you could also email me at work. It's M-Ray, so M-R-A-Y at ppld.org. Again, thank you so much for being here. I am your host, Liz Hack, and thanks for listening to Small Shop Fundraising.